pray this morning that as we sing these songs, Lord, our hearts are filled with gratitude, with thanksgiving, with praise and honor, Lord. I pray this morning that as we continue the service, Lord, that you administer to our hearts, Lord. I, I know we are a, a broken people, Lord, but we are made new in you, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would heal the brokenhearted as you have come to do. And I pray, Lord, that you would give beauty for ashes, Lord. And uh, Lord, you are a saving God. You are a good God. You've saved our lives, Lord. And so help us, Lord, as we get into your word to know you better and to walk in your grace and your mercy and your love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, before you sit down, can you say hello to a couple of people, please? All right, you may be seated, please. All right. Yeah, worship messed me up this morning in a good way. That, uh, that last song, just listening that, to that a lot and... Uh, the gratitude of just when you know that Jesus saved your life and just thanking Him for that. So it's not good when you start off a little emotional in the beginning of service. But uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them out and turn to the book of Luke chapter 5 and just hang out there for a few minutes. We have some announcements and we're going to show a video to you as well. Short video. Okay, so Wednesday night, we are back in the book of Romans. We're in chapter 7 and 8. I'd encourage you to read ahead for that. And uh, we are at the the pinnacle of the goodness of God in chapters 7 and 8 of the book of Romans. So encourage you all to come out on Wednesday night and uh, read ahead for that. We also want to talk a little bit about the baptism but uh, before I do that, just wanted to uh, acknowledge that uh, this weekend we're commemorating Memorial Day and uh, encourage you all to take some time out tomorrow just to think about the sacrifices that were made so you and I can sit here or stand here and enjoy the freedoms that we have. And so without the sacrifices of many, I know... My dad uh, enlisted in the Air Force when he was 17 years old and was fighting in the Korean War uh, when he was 17 and 18 years old. And uh, it's because of things like that. And I know many of you here serve. Memorial Day is for those who've lost their lives. And uh, we stand here because of that. But it also gives us uh, amazing insight into uh, how God has designed things. Because in a bigger scale, the ultimate victory and our ultimate freedom came at the cost of God himself, who came into this world to take our sins upon him. And so uh, a lot to reflect on and just uh, encourage you. It's, you know, it's a day off and everything. It's the start of summer. But at the same time, uh, spend a few minutes or hours and just reflect on the sacrifices that were made for our country. So I just wanted to point that out. So next week is our baptism, and Lord willing, we're going to show you a video from two years ago. Last week, we showed you a video from last year's baptism. This one is from two years ago, and in this one, there's a a little more, uh, the videographer uh, included a little more of the discussion about baptism, so I think that'll be helpful uh, for us to understand uh, what we're doing as far as baptism, why we do it, and all those kind of things. We do have a sign-up sheet in the foyer. If you're planning on coming at all, please just put your name down so give us an idea of uh, how much food to prepare. And if you are planning to, on getting baptized, then there's also um, a place where you can just put your name down for that as well. And so um, let's take a look at the video, the baptism two years ago. And the, the last guy, why they're queuing that up, the last guy to get baptized on the video has uh, recently passed away. And 
he got saved right before this baptism. So that makes it a little extra touching to me. So here we go. When God touches somebody's heart, they're just never the same. And for somebody to desire to testify as to what God has done in their heart in front of their friends and family in their church body, um, that is truly a miracle. And that's what baptism is. Baptism is just simply an outward sign of an inward reality. They want to walk in the newness of life. This is not something to take lightly or frivolously or something to just do because other people are doing it. What they are declaring is that they now are going to walk with Jesus. And what that's a picture of is someone dying to themselves. It's a picture of somebody going into the grave and dying and saying, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And so when they come out of that water, they're arising in newness of life. They are spiritually resurrecting unto Jesus, so now that their life is lived unto Jesus. When we baptize somebody and put them into water, we're identifying with Jesus' death on the cross. And you may recall that right before Jesus went to the cross, he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prayed, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And that was significant because he was demonstrating for us what it really means to live as a Christian. It means we live for his will and not our will any longer. And this is what Paul is saying. Therefore, we were buried with him, Jesus, through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. And so that amazing picture of the story not ending when Jesus died on the cross for our sins but the story just beginning that he died but he rose again from the dead also by faith as we put our faith in Jesus Christ we die to ourselves and to our flesh and we now live by the Spirit unto God. And now we are raised to the newness of life. And that newness of life means that God gives us a new heart. He gives us a new spirit. He gives us a desire to follow after Him. He gives us a hunger and a thirst for Him. 
And so today as we watch those getting baptized, we are mindful of how God has done a miracle in each of those hearts that we see. And truly it is a miracle as we see what's going on in our world and as we see the deception in our world, as we see the lies being spread, that God sets those free who truly come to Him. So there you go. So it was the second to last person that was baptized there uh, is now with the Lord. And uh, I remember he, I visited him in, in the hospital, I think it was uh, about a month or six weeks before he actually passed away. And uh, he was in pretty bad shape. And I didn't even know if, if he would be able to hear me or recognize uh, who I was or my voice. But I went in and he was asleep and I grabbed his hand and I said, Jim, it's Pastor John. And he, he kind of woke up and I said, hey, do you remember getting baptized? And he, he shook his head and I said, um, I read him uh, John 3.16 and he acknowledged that. And then it was like six weeks later he passed away. And so, uh, so praise be to God. That's pretty much our baptism in a nutshell I uh, encourage you all to come out. There's really nothing else to say about that. But uh, for us, uh, I always like to say that's our Super Bowl. So that's what it's, that's, that is what, why we do what we do. It's a great commission. And uh, here's something really interesting. The section of Scripture that we're in today in, in the book of Luke, it was uh, the account of four men carrying a paralytic man into the house where Jesus was and lowering him down. And there was a group of guys that had to carry Jim down into the water to be baptized. So it's just crazy. And yeah, so those things, is how the Lord works, it just blows me away. So now I would like to draw your attention to the book of Luke. We're going to get into the word now. And we're in chapter 5. And we're actually in part 2 of what we're calling Jesus is God. And as we look at this section of Scripture, I like to read it together and get, just to get the, the idea and the flow of what's going on. And then we'll look at it a little more closely with, with the idea that Jesus is God. So Luke chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then, behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him, Jesus. And when they could not find how they might bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and they let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. And when he, Jesus, saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God and God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? 
Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who is paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, And he departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things this day. So what was Jesus doing there? He was obviously demonstrating his deity. And that's just a way of saying that Jesus was nothing less than God. The deity of Christ was that he is the creator of all things. He is not created. He didn't become God, but he's eternally God who came into this world as a human being to be a sacrifice for the sins of mankind, to die on the cross and then raise again from the dead. So that's who Jesus claimed he was. In this section of scripture, not only is Jesus claiming clearly that he is God, but then he is proving that he is God. He's taking it to a whole nother level. And how does he do that? This is what I find fascinating. He does that with something that all of us can can sort of relate to. And he's demonstrating his deity or his godness through power. So when, when we think about power, we think about ability to do something, strength, we think about capability. Mankind is fascinated with power. That's why we love superheroes. That's why the Greeks had Greek gods. That's why in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 18, Elijah had this epic battle with these prophets 450 prophets of Baal Baal was a false god and he challenged them on on Mount Carmel and he said you bring your prophets here and I'll come here and we'll have this battle to see which god is true and the battle was such that you have your gods I have what he would say is the one true god and we'll build an, an altar And we'll put an animal on the altar for a sacrifice. And you call on your God to bring fire down from heaven to consume the sacrifice. And I'll call on my God to bring fire down from heaven and consume the sacrifice. And we'll see who's more powerful. And so there is an agreement. And so the prophets of Baal, they they went and they began to pray to their God and nothing happened. They then became more agitated as it went from morning to evening and they got on top of the sacrifice or the altar, I should say, and they started dancing around and chanting. Nothing happened. They began to cut themselves and bleed, which was a custom of of pagan religions, and nothing happened. And then it was Elijah's turn. He called on the God from heaven. Fire came down and consumed the sacrifice. And he made this statement in 1 Kings 18.21 about this. Before this actually happened, he said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And then he went about to prove through power that the God of heaven was the one true God. So it was a contest of power. And so when we think about God, he has to be all-powerful. He has to be more powerful than men. He has to have more capability than men have. And so this is the sort of the, the battle that mankind goes through. And even at one point with mankind trying to be like God, they built a big tower to go as high as they could into heaven. We know that as the Tower of Babel. And that was an attempt of man to be like God. 
and God smote that down, and that's when the, the people were scattered throughout the whole earth and different languages came about. It, it was because the demonstration of power of mankind, it's always limited and can never be compared to God. Satan is another example. Satan became who he is now because he was a created angel who tried to take the place of God. And God demonstrated his power by smiting him down. And so in our text, God is then demonstrating, Jesus is showing us that he is truly God through, through po power, through his ability and capability. And God's power is unlimited. He has ultimate power. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, and that is God. We, however, are limited in our power. And, it's, and sometimes we get that mixed up. And when we get that mixed up, then we fall on our faces over and over again until we realize and submit to the true power of God who has the power to change. The power to change things. The power to uh, do things in our life that we can never do. He has the power. So let's take a look a little more closely at this section of scripture and in from verses 17 starting in verse 17 that first little section of scripture that we looked at uh, that goes up to verse 19 basically what's happening is Jesus is in Capernaum a, a seaside village on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus had previous to this had healed a leper, someone with an incurable disease. He also, previous to this, had turned over the money changers' tables because of their false religion and how religion, in their religious ways, they were taking advantage of people. And when Jesus came, he said, it's not going to be like that. We can't have that. He turns over the money changer's table. He did that at the end of his ministry as well. But what Jesus is establishing in his ministry is that the way that things were being done religiously at the time were wrong and against his own heart. And Jesus came on the scene then as a savior, but he had to show and demonstrate his ability, his power to actually save people. And so he heals a leper. So that gets people's attention. It's never happened that way in any, any time that, that a man came and, and healed a leper. And so there's a big buzz around what Jesus was doing. There's a lot of attention going on. So in this seaside village, he was in a house and that house probably was Peter's house, but we don't know for sure. But he's in this house, and it's so crowded, it's packed. Because he was teaching and preaching. They wanted to hear the truth. They wanted to hear the word of God. People were starving for the truth. They were starving for the word of God. All they had at that point was religious ceremonies and outward obedience to rules and laws and things like that. And then here Jesus comes and he's, he's speaking truth and it's hitting their hearts. It's awakening their consciences. It's bringing their attention to their true need. And so this house is packed with people. But at the same time, there's a guy that's paralyzed. And he has friends that know that Jesus has the capability to heal, what were they saying? They knew Jesus had power. So we, we talked about last week, and that's a, the first testimony that we see here in our text in regards to the deity of Christ. It was that those around Jesus acknowledged that he had a, a power that no one else had. So that in itself maybe is not enough to substantiate that, that he is God, but it's getting pretty good. Because their testimony is from other people now. And the testimony, just the fact that they're coming to Jesus, one, to hear the word. But then two, there's another group of people that, that want the healing power of Jesus. And so they bring their friend on a mat, four men 
on a bed, some, some sort of uh, way that they were carrying him to the house, but the house was so full they couldn't get in. So they go up to the roof. In, in houses at, at, in those times, they had access to the roof from stairs that were on the outside, and the roofs were flat. So don't try that at, at your own house because it probably won't work the same, but the roofs were flat, and their faith kept carrying their friend to Jesus. Their faith kept moving them. They weren't deterred by obstacles because their faith kept moving forward, kept going closer and closer to Jesus. Their faith wasn't going to, going to stop and say, forget it, just because they couldn't get into the house. So they actually go on the roof and they dig a hole through the roof. And then they lower their friend down on his bed. But meanwhile, while all this is going on, you have the religious crowd, the religious officials, the big wigs, wigs who had heard about the ministry of Jesus, and they were there. And they, they had come from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, and they, they've come to Galilee right to the specific place to, to, to see what was going on. Because something was so unusual. And their religion blinded them to the reality of God who is right in front of them. Isn't that interesting? The very people who were knowledgeable about the scriptures, the most knowledgeable. And at that time, of course, they just had the Old Testament scriptures. But Jesus is right in front of them. And they were observing him intently. And they missed it. And that's often what religious performance will do when one counts on their outward obedience to certain rules and laws and things that they would deem as good instead of trusting in God for an inside transformation. But see, this is where Jesus was going with all this. This is what he was trying to teach them and explain to them. And so you have this incredible scene that will actually pick it up this morning in verse 20. As this man was lowered down right in front of Jesus. And you could just sort of imagine the crowd that was all around him packed in this room. You imagine that those four men that lowered Jesus down, they're peeking through and there was actually more of a crowd that came with the man than just the four that lowered him down. And then you have the religious people looking for Jesus to do something wrong so they can kill him. And this whole scene is going on. And, and really you're, you're thinking, well, what is Jesus going to do? Is he going to get mad that they interrupted his sermon? Is he going to get upset that they went about Getting to him the, the way that they did is the person of the house going to get upset that they ruined his house? But what you, what you start to discover that the, the closer you get to Jesus, the less little things really matter. Because all those guys, and now, and now the one guy, the paralyzed, paralyzed guy, all he cared about was that he got to Jesus. And he's there. So in verse 20, look what happens. So Jesus saw their faith. And he said to them, uh, to him, man, your sins are forgiven you. And so that's interesting because that's not why he was coming. He didn't come for his sins to be forgiven. He came to walk. But notice something very powerful. That Jesus... What did he see? He saw their faith. So Jesus saw their faith. So that begs the question, what does Jesus see in us? What is he seeing in us? I hope he sees that in me. I hope he sees that in you. But we have to ask ourselves, well, what kind of faith do we have? Do we have a conditional faith that will have faith if we get what we want and things go favorably and then, then we'll have that kind of faith? 
That's not the faith that Jesus was seeing here. Do we have, have faith that's sort of just a superficial kind of faith that really we have more faith in ourselves or the things of the world than we do in Christ? Or do we have a faith like this? What kind of faith was this? This was a, a faith that knew, and because of this knowledge, trust was placed into Jesus' hands. That's what Jesus saw. He saw faith. He saw the actions that stemmed from something that was in the heart of these people, particularly the four men that would carry the paralyzed man to Jesus, but also the paralyzed man, because he was part of this process too. We don't find that he went kicking and screaming. So he might have been instrumental in telling those who are carrying the paralytic man to Jesus and saying, hey, take me to Jesus. We don't know that, but he definitely wasn't fighting or arguing or resisting. But, but Jesus, his response to all of this, and this shows us how valuable faith is. Peter said our faith is much more precious than gold and silver. In other words, our Faith is the whole thing. Faith is, you might want to say, the currency of heaven. Faith, that's what faith is. And that's what Jesus saw. And none of the other things really mattered at this point, but he saw, he saw a faith that believed Jesus could heal their friend. He saw a faith that put all of their money on Jesus, so to speak. They put all their eggs in the Jesus basket. They, 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 they knew Jesus was the answer, and because of that, they were moved to do whatever was necessary to get there. That, that's the faith that he saw. That's a, a, a trusting faith. You, you might want to say that's a saving faith. Because there's... Faith that doesn't save. Uh, the Bible says that demons believe in God. Demons even believe in God and have correct theology. And even fear God. But yet, they're not saved. So saving faith knows that Jesus is the answer and doesn't stop, stop there, but actually shifts what they are trusting in, gives over to Jesus. They're, our faith gives our trust over to Jesus. And now, for example, for saving faith, we're counting on Jesus and His finished work on the cross to get us to heaven. That's what saving faith is. Saving faith is not... We believe that Jesus died on the cross and atoned for our sin, but we also have to do good works to be saved as well, like a combination kind of thing. That's not saving faith. Saving faith is that my works before God are like filthy rags, that what I do to work to earn God's favor actually is credit against me because I must come to Him recognizing my own inability and get this, my lack of power to save myself. My complete lack of power to do anything about my condition before God. And that is the beginning of being saved. Because then we put our trust in the one who has the power to save. So in in. Verse 20, as we see Jesus proving that he's God, he makes this statement that if he wasn't God, he should be killed for, according to the Jewish religion. Because as he sees their faith, he says, your sins are forgiven. So who can say that? To someone else. Who can tell someone else, I 
have the power to forgive your sins and be right. We can say that, but to be right. Jesus now has stepped into the place that only God stands when he said that. Jesus is now putting on himself the ability to heal this man's sins and to actually have the ability to say that your sins are forgiven you. And so that's why in verse 21, you'll notice there it says, then the scribes and the Pharisees, they began to reason, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? And then they make it really clear what they're talking about. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So they know that. They understand what the Word of God says. They're experts in it, and they, that is right. They, they know that only God can forgive sins. And this is a, a great scripture for us to know and understand that in order to be right with God, our sins have to be forgiven. That we can't do good things and still have our sins unforgiven and think that we're going to be made right with God. Because it is our very sins that keep us from God. And these Pharisees and their scribes and the scribes, they're thinking that they got a softball thrown to them. Do you know what that means? It's something very easy to hit. They came to get Jesus. And Jesus says to the man, your sins are forgiven. And they say, we got it. They threw us a softball home run. This one's going over the fence. He's done. He's done. We got him. And they would be right if he wasn't God. But Jesus makes it very clear, and that's exactly what he's doing. He's making it very clear, and now he's putting himself out there in such a way where he's declaring by the power that he's saying he has to forgive sins, he's saying, I am God. That's his declaration. I am God. And he's saying it by saying, I forgive your sins. And they say that's blasphemy because blasphemy means that you are doing something in regards to God, uh, maybe you're ascribing things to God that are unworthy. Maybe you're taking the place of God or putting another thing in front of God. But ultimately, the worst possible sin was to say you are God. And it would be worthy of death. Because only God alone can forgive sins. But look at verse 22. So it says, but when Jesus perceived their thoughts, you know what that means? Jesus saw inside of them. So they didn't say this, they were thinking this. The scribes and the Pharisees, these religious people, you remember them? They came from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. They're watching Jesus and, and Jesus is, is making this declaration to this paralyzed man. And mind you, he hasn't said anything uh, about healing his legs at all he just said your sins are forgiven why because jesus was dealing with something far more important and the scribes and the pharisees are sitting around and they're like that's blasphemy only god can forgive sins they're thinking this and jesus is doing there's there's really three miracles going on here and this is a miracle he's perceiving their thoughts he knows, like spiritual x-ray vision, spiritual MRI, he sees what's going on, and he actually addresses it. He says, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Now imagine how that would have arrested their attention. They're thinking these things, and then Jesus calls them out on it. He brings it to the attention of everybody there. There, Remember, it's a crowded room. 
So there's people there, and he brings it to the attention of everybody there, and he, he says, I know what you're thinking. Why are you thinking this way? And he says, which is easier, get this, you might want to circle this if you're taking notes, which is either easier to say? Say, circle that word say. What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you, is that easy to say? Anybody could say that. Because there's no real way to validate that. There's no real way to prove that. That's the problem when we go to someone else to look to them to forgive our sins before God, whether it's a, a priest or somebody like that, and it's up to them to forgive us of our sins. So we never really know if our sins are truly forgiven or not. But we know that no one has the power to forgive sins other than God. And so Jesus, he makes this point. And, and what he's doing is now he's going to demonstrate his power. So is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to rise up and walk? See, now that would be a hard thing to say. Because then you'd have to prove it right there. You'd have to prove it. If you say, hey, to a paralyzed person, rise up and walk and it didn't happen, then you would be shown to be wrong, a fraud. In this context, a false prophet, he would be worthy of death by the Judea, Judean system, the system of the Jews. He'd be worthy of that. And so Jesus uses the opportunity to heal somebody physically to prove what he can do spiritually. You get that? This is so great because over and over again through the scriptures, we are, do you know we're never told to blindly believe, to have blind faith? Have you ever heard that before? Do you know we're never asked to do that? We're asked to reason. We're asked to search for the truth. And you know what? If you are truly a truth seeker, it'll always lead you back to Jesus. You know why? He is the way and the truth and the life. So if you seek truth, if you're genuinely interested in truth, it'll lead you back to Jesus. And so Jesus puts himself in a position to where he has to do something in order to be proved correct as to his identification. So now you can imagine the tension in the room kind of heating up this power display or the potential of having a display of power. Here's the man who can't walk and everybody in town would know him. They would know about his condition. These people in the town, they would be familiar. And so the whole section of this particular scripture culminates in in what's going to be what's going to happen next and i love this verse 24 so jesus says but that you may know in other words jesus is saying i'm doing everything i can that you know the truth and as we look back historically on the life of Jesus, and we look back even before that in the scriptures, in the Torah, in the development of mankind, in the prophets and the prophecies, we can say this, God wants us to know. And, and because of that, he's done a lot. I would say he's done as much as he can to let us know and give us everything that we need apart from crossing over our own free will. In other words, there's nothing that is more believable than God revealed in history throughout mankind. There's nothing more authenticated. There's nothing more validated. There's nothing more, and that's because God wants us to know. So if we're blinded 
to the truth, that's not on God. That's on our unwillingness to know. Because it says, but that you may know. So everybody in this room, and for Luke who's going to write this down, and the disciples who are going to testify to this as well, I want everybody to know. In other words, Jesus is saying this for us today. I want you guys to know too. And then, if that's not enough, he says that the Son of Man, now that might not mean much to you, but to those in the room and the scribes and the Pharisees, when they, then that word is, or that term is used, the Son of Man, that would bring up passionately the prophet Daniel who referred to the Son of Man as God. Daniel 7, 13 and 14, I'll read it for you, but you might want to jot it down. It says this, One like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days. Who's that? God the Father. In the vision And he was given absolute authority over all creation so that all the people would worship him. Daniel 7, the prophet Daniel uses that term, the son of man, meaning that there's going to be one who comes who is God and all the world will worship him. And this term is used by Jesus here, identifying himself as that One who Daniel the prophet was saying was God who was going to come into this world. So that you know. So just wipe out any thought that you might have now. He's saying to the people in the crowd and the Pharisees and the the, uh, scribes. He's saying, I know what you're thinking, but I want to erase all of those thoughts right now. So you know now not only do I have the ability to forgive sins, which only God can do but now i'm calling myself the son of man which daniel talked about and they would all know about that so it's getting heated it's getting hot and it's tension is building and so he says oh you know that the son of man has power notice the word power on earth to forgive sins He said to the man who is paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately, he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on and departed to his own house. Now, mind you, this is the power of the word of God. This is something that we see throughout the whole Bible, starting in the book of Genesis, where God said something and it happened. So how did all the material world get here? The things that we can see, touch, feel, smell, hear, taste, all the, how did they get here? God said, let there be, and it happened. God said, let there be the heavens and the earth, and it happened. Let there be the waters. Let there be the creation. And so that that eternal, all-powerful God who said the world into existence, now he has this parallel, uh, paralyzed guy, and he just tells him to get up and walk. And he did it immediately. So what that means is, It wasn't a process. This was a creative miracle. God restored immediately all his nervous system that had been damaged and the communication of the brain to the brainstem, to the spinal cord, to the nerve roots, out to every muscle of the legs, that in an instant that was all restored. And not only that, he didn't have to learn to walk again. He just started walking like he had been doing that his whole life. This is a creative miracle. This is, uh, there's no physical therapists around. This is not a, uh, if you're an occupational therapist, you're out. You're, you're You're not needed here. 
Because Jesus, when he heals, when he says, it's done. And it's done immediately. There's no prosperity gospel. Kenneth Copeland trying to, you know, two people hold, oh, I think he's walking kind of now. This is not like that. This is God doing the miracle of healing, showing and demonstrating his power to do that. And so as he, he gets up, imagine what that's like. Imagine the, the tension arise, well, and he actually stands up, takes up his mat and starts walking. And this is mind-blowing. And he goes back, and of course, he's glorifying God. And I, I, I was thinking and praying about that, and I'm thinking, man, the, this is a physical miracle that's happening, and God has forgiven me of my sins and done spiritual miracles in my life that are so much greater and that's why we glorify God. That's why we live our life to give Him glory. That's why when we go home from here, we glorify God. That's why your neighbors see you getting out of your car and you're getting back in your house and you're glorifying God. And they say, what's wrong with that guy? He's glorifying God. Because God is so good. Why do we weep sometimes? Not me, but you guys, when we worship why, why? It's because God is so good and we glorify him because he's so amazing. He, he has the power to do things that we can never do ourselves. And I know many of us here have been saved from very difficult, troubling lifestyles and habits and addictions and all. And he's, he's healed you. Isn't that amazing? That's what it's all about. That's what Christianity is all about. It's all about this. And it says they are all amazed, as you could imagine. So this is speaking about the crowd, and they glorified God, but it says they're filled with fear, too. It's an interesting tension there, because it's, it's like when you get exposed to the power of God, it's frightening. But then when you understand that the power of God for a believer is not going to hurt you, but it's on your side. If God be for you, who can get, be against you? So now it's this power of God that they've been exposed to, and they, they have witnessed it and demonstrated their, their understanding that He said He's God, He proved He's God. And they're amazed, they can't, Believe it, but at the same time, it's like, wow, this is, this is scary. This power is, is scary. And that's why Jesus says that he has come to use his power to give us life and that more abundantly. He used his power to go to the cross, demonstrating the ultimate amount of meekness using his power for good. And then they said, and we'll finish with this, we have seen strange things today. That word strange means, it, the Greek word is paradoxus, which you can probably figure out, that's where we get our word paradox. So they're declaring what they saw was unexpected, it was uncommon, like a, a paradox, but what the, that they're realizing is that there is a human being that's actually God. And this human being that's God was always God and became a human being, came into this world, God with us, Emmanuel, in order to be a sacrifice for our sins, to pay the price of forgiveness that only he could pay. Only God could pay that because it would demand that someone who is sinless would be able to be a sacrifice for someone who is sinful. And so when we put this all together and bring this amazing story to uh, our laps and we say, well, what do I do with all this? This, this thing that happened and it really all, all comes down to Jesus is God. Nothing less. 
But see, here's the thing. Here's the application. If that's true, if that's true, then you and I should be able to easily fall under his authority. Why? Because he's God. What else would someone do to a God that made them other than acknowledge and recognize that you're God? And that I can accept then that you're a God of order and not confusion. That you're a God that requires me to submit to you, to obey you. You're a God who knows the way, so I must follow you. It doesn't make sense. We have to decide if he truly is God, you can't stay in the middle. The Bible says that there's no middle. You're either for me or against me. So we have to ask ourselves, am I for God? No neutral, no middle. But then think about what you may be going through in your life right now. And don't forget he's God and he's for you. That's why he told his disciples not to be anxious. He said, peace I'll give you, not peace as the world gives, but peace that only I give. So now, if you are a believer, don't forget to add in God to the equation. And you you may be looking at some big mountains in your life, big obstacles, big trials, big difficulties, But what are those to God? Nothing. And know that God is for you. Know that God has a plan for your life. That he wants to work out that plan in a perfect way based on how he's designed you and made you. And so the first step to all of that is to recognize that Jesus is God. And so we come to him knowing that it is only right and fitting to worship Him and give Him the reins of our life. That's how it works. But hey, if He's not God, then forget the whole thing. But I know as you follow the rabbit trail of information and truth, it will lead to Jesus Christ. And He'll be standing there and He'll be saying, Welcome, you found true life in me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. So lamp into our feet. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here who have come to seek you and to worship you and to know of you even more. I pray now, Lord, that you administer these truths to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. I pray if anybody is here this morning, and has a wrong view of you, misunderstanding about you. If anybody here is not arrested by your glory and your presence, your majesty, how big you are, yet how you came into this world to save us of our sins I pray for anybody here now who has never received you as Lord and Savior and if you're here now and never come to that point in your life where you've received the love of Christ his offer of forgiveness of your sins he's calling for you now to make that decision to put your trust in him the Bible says that all who call in the name of the Lord would be saved and as we pointed out earlier it's just a matter of recognizing our need for him and putting our trust 
in who Jesus is and what he has done. And you can do that right where you are, right in your seat. Just cry out to Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe, forgive me of my sins. And if you are saved, I just want to pray for you that you will face every bit of difficulty knowing that you have the power of God behind you. And that power of God is working all things together for good in your life. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And he says to come to him if you're weary, heavy laden, and he will give you rest. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's all stand. We're going to sing this last song of praise before we leave. And if anybody would like prayer this morning, we'll have our prayer team up front. They'd love to pray with you. If, if you'd like to take this opportunity to ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, to give your life to Him, feel free to come on up. If you have anything else going on in your life, as we sing this last song, just feel free to come up. They'd love to pray for you. Let's worship the Lord. God bless you guys.